Good morning. Hope you're doing well. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Judges. If you're not sure where Judges is, you can look in the table of contents. No big deal on that. It's in the beginning of the Old Testament. Um, it ha- makes a little sentence. When I was in Bible drill in fourth, fifth, and sixth grade, they helped me understand where Judges were. It's uh, Joshua Judges Ruth. Joshua's a, not a good guy. He likes to judge Ruth all the time. Uh, but that's how I memorized where it was. So uh, it's right after the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Then you have Joshua, Judges, Ruth. So we are preaching through the book of Judges right now. Uh, and because some uh, things were happening with my family, as, as many of you know, my mom passed away uh, about a week and a half ago. And um, so uh, we had some people filling in for me. And I was, was supposed to be going through the, the book of Judges into chapter 11. Uh, and so I missed last week, so I went ahead and told Jordan just to go ahead and preach the second half of Judges 11, and I just would come in behind and preach the first half of Judges 11. So we're doing Judges 11 uh, backwards, but, you know, the Lord's sovereign, and that's the way he wanted it. So uh, we're going to be in Judges chapter 11. Now, Jordan's already preached the second half, as I said, and done the tragic vow. Uh, and so I'm not really going to touch on the tragic vow except for just in the beginning for a second. And that's from uh, a question that arose in our community group this week. Um, it's just going to stay as it was. So what we're going to see is uh, some background and what led uh, Jephthah to be called by the Gileads uh, to come fight for Israel uh, before we get to the tragic vow. So we're going to be in Judges chapter 11, 1, uh, basically towards about 33. So if you have a Bible... Uh, Open up to Judges chapter 11 and stand with me, if you would, as we read it. Uh, we, we stand as we read the, the Word of God here just to honor it. And if you're not able, that's fine. You can stay seated. After I read, I'll say, this is the Word of the Lord. And you'll respond by saying, thanks be to God. And of course, you're saying that because you're thankful the Lord would give us his scriptures. But also, as you say, say uh, thanks be to God, let it serve as a way to say to God that you want to obey the things that he, he teaches you this morning. So, uh, the, the Holy Spirit is the teacher here this morning, not me, and he's going to teach all of us, including myself. So uh, let's, let's be obedient to it and, and receptive to what he wants. Starting in verse 1. Now, Jephthah the Gilead was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come out and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you're in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, "Um, That is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said, To the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be be your head. That's almost like a question mark there because there's an if in the Hebrew. Anyway, uh, and the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord will be witness between us if we do not know, if we not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head over the leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all those words before the Lord at Mizpah. Verse 12. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me that you, um, that you have come to me to fight against and fight? I'm sorry, to come to me to fight against my lamb. And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel, because Israel on coming up from Egypt took away my land, and from Arnon 
to the Jabbok and to the Jordan, and now therefore restore it peaceably. Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites, but when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and, and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen, and they also... And they also sent to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and arrived at the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Then Israel, Israel then sent messengers to the Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon, Israel said to him, please let us pass through your landing country. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through this territory. So Sihon gathered all his people together and encamped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all of his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited the country. And they took possession of the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to Jabbok and the wilderness to the Jordan. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, um, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel, are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Shemosh your God gives you to possess? And all that the Lord and all that the Lord God has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Now, are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel, or did he go to war with them? While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages and Ar its villages and all the cities that are on the banks of Arnon 300 years, why did you not deliver them within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. Then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through the Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah and Gilead. From Mizpah to Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give me the Ammonites in my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors to meet me, I will return in peace uh, from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aor to the neighborhood of Meneth, 20 cities as far as Abel Karim with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Let's pray. God, thanks for your word. Thanks for your text. Um, it's a large uh, piece of literature that we're looking at today in your word. And I pray that you would help us as we look at it. That you would help us see and understand all uh, that we can understand about Jephthah and how it relates to us. And Lord, I pray that um, more than anything that any, anybody here no matter where they are in their stage of life or what's going on, that they would want to um, be used by you and see that the Lord uses everyone for his purposes and for his glory. Um, Please, God, speak through me now and help me have a clarity of mind and thought and Holy Spirit come and superintend these moments. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, that was the beginning of last week. And as we were going through... uh, community groups, at least in my community group, one of the things that, um, that we saw was this tragic vow. And I just wanted to talk about it for one second. Jordan explained that this tragedy befell this guy Jephthah on this. He's a problematic leader, no doubt. Uh, as we know, as we go through the book of Judges, it's kind of a, a worse progression of leadership. And here, midway through the book, we're seeing, uh, we're seeing that. And so uh, one of the questions that asked uh, 
uh, in our group was after Jephthah made this vow and then he saw that his daughter came out, why didn't, why didn't he just not do it? Um, now, there, there are Old Testament laws uh, and Old Testament verses about making uh, vows and keeping them, and it would have been wrong for him to keep them. And so you can, you're left with the question, well, did Jephthah really follow God at all? Like, what was, his, what was his understanding of Yahweh? Wasn't he pretty much just a mixture of all the pagan cultures then? And so why did he feel this, this need to really keep that thing about Yahweh, but not the rest? Um, and I was reading and listening and trying to, trying to answer that question because it kind of like, I was like, that's a great question. Um, so uh, as I was listening and studying and, and, and reading, one of the, one of the uh, commentators that I, that I read said that uh, they didn't believe that Jephthah should have kept the vow. And I'm like, wow, that's pretty strong. Why would they say that? And he said, basically, uh, Jephthah had no concept of the grace of God. Uh, and so since he had no concept of the grace of God, he thought he had to. But and this is his opinion, and, and I thought it was pretty good. But what he said Jephthah should have done is not kept the vow, not killed his daughter, repented of ever making such a foolish vow, uh, and then repented of not knowing God well enough to think that he has to have some kind of transactional relationship so that, God, if I do things for you, then you'll finally do things for me and realize that all of our relationship with God is always all of grace, that we don't do anything. God does everything. And since he had no concept of the grace of God, he should have not killed his daughter and then gone back to the beginning and say, God, I repent for ever thinking that our relationship should ever be transactional at all, that you are the God of all grace and that you should, <clears throat> you should um, forgive me and our relationship should be constantly based upon that. So um, I hope that's an answer for all of y'all. Maybe you had those discussions in, in, your, uh, in your community groups as well, but um, we did. And I thought that that was at least a decent answer to that particular question. Now, um, as we're going into chapter 11, I want you to think about this. I want you to uh, think about yourself in this regard. We, we ask the question here. Go ahead and put it there. Who does God use to do his work and accomplish his work? And you might think um, he usually uses the pastors, the ministers, the church staff, and the people that have all their stuff together. You know, the people that are smart and the people that, that uh, are doing well in life. Not, not someone like me who's got a mess of a life that ha- has made just a, a big, huge mistake or a bunch of huge uh, continual uh, mistakes in my life that I'm not the kind of person that I would, that God would use. It's the other people that have, that have their lives together. Have you thought about this much? And I wonder if you think that if that's the case, um, I'm hoping that this sermon today will help you see that that's not the case, that uh, he wants to use every single person in this room. He wants to use you in particular, the one that, that said, well, not me, the one that has their stuff together, but not me. I want you to see that he wants to use you. Um, And I want you to think about this. Why does God use certain people to accomplish his will? What are the characteristics of those people? Um, It's not the people that have their lives perfectly put together. It's everybody. And so uh, deep down, you might say, yeah, I really do believe that. God does use everybody. When I read the Bible, he uses everybody. I mean, that's true. But still, uh, you think, but not me. Because I don't don't ever see myself being used by God. And really... uh, I think that's true because he's God, of course, and I'm not supposed to think wrong about God. But in the end, I know he's not going to use me, and he's not going to choose me on his team. 
Um, you know, you're constantly, you know, when you grew up, the one that was chosen last for sports, maybe you're really unathletic and you're the one that's chosen last and you feel like, and that's the way God would choose me too. You know, he chooses all the good people and then the last person, you know, he, he has to take me. So I, I'm the guy that gets stuck on the team, but no one ever throws me the ball. Um, you know, not speaking from experience per se. Um, so uh, I don't want you to think that that's the case about God because God uh, wants to use you specifically. As a matter of fact, uh, as we'll see here, the life that you've lived up until this point is precisely the training ground that God has used so that you are now going to be used by him. So uh, I think as we go through this particular chapter, those are some of the things that we can see about Jephthah. He, he's a problematic person. I mean, he's got some serious, serious flaws um, and so as we're going through this, I'm not trying to make Jephthah sound great at all. He, he's not that great. Uh, I'm trying to see that since he's not so great, look how great God is to use people like this uh, for his glory, for pushing forward his purposes. So you can see some of the things about him. Verse 1, Jephthah the Gilead was a mighty warrior. That's good. Um, so like Gideon, he's a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. So this is not good. Like Abimelech, he is the son of a prostitute, prostitute and never felt like he belonged to anyone. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew, grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you should not have any inheritance in our father's house for you are the son of a prostitute. See, you get the, all the brothers here and they're like, well, we're all from mom, but you're illegitimate. So we're all part of the family. You just need to get out of here. We don't really care about you being a part of us. Since your mom was a prostitute, you're not really a part of our brothers. So you can already see he grew up certainly in a dysfunctional family. And then it says in verse three, then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, uh, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. So he, he was, as he got um, sent away by his brothers from this dysfunctional family, he didn't live uh, what would be a great life. He, he's kind of like a, 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 a crime mob boss here in charge of stuff. He's a strong fella. And so as he's dr- sent out, he, uh, he becomes, as it says here, uh, someone who hangs around worthless fellows and they went out with him. And so he had some giftings. He had some giftings, but he certainly had some serious problems. And so, as I said, like Abimelech, he's the son of a prostitute. Like Gideon, he's also a mighty warrior. And like everyone almost in judges, almost everyone, with a few exceptions, he's from a dysfunctional family. But um, Jephthah, because of this, becomes a serious product of his upbringing and his environment. He's got serious problems in his life. And it's important to stress this. He was not making great uh, choices in his life. That's not why God decided to be gracious enough to use him anyway. He wasn't making great choices. He was surrounded by tons of poor influences, worthless fellows, but he also has some good characteristics. He's a mighty warrior. It seems to be that he's a a decently strong person. He's an intelligent person. It's just that uh, he wasn't accepted. So there's some some similarities. There's lots of differences from Jesus, right? But there are some similarities from Jesus uh, uh, in, in regard to Jephthah. Uh, one similarity is both were thought to be illegitimate, illegitimately born from their mothers. And so but because of that, both were in some ways outcasts. Um, and then at one point, uh, as, we, as we read through, Israel must seek the very help from the one that they outcast. Here, Israel must go to Jephthah and say, come help us. We're, we're going to get killed. And then 
Jesus in, in, in the same way. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, Peter tells all of Israel, the one that you have outcast, the one that you've, by your hands have, that you've killed, you must go seek and repent and be baptized, every single one of you, in the name of Jesus. So there's some similarities. And, of course, there's lots of dif- differences because Jephthah's pretty pretty terrible person in a lot of ways. So what's most striking then is this. God's going to use this man, the son of a harlot, rejected by his brothers, a leader of basically kind of thugs, um, a crime mob boss or something like that. He's going to use that guy to save Israel. He's going to use that guy to save Israel, which should for us highlight the graciousness of God, not the greatness of Jephthah. He's not necessarily that great, but instead the greatness of God that he uses anybody. So as we're going through this, what I want to do is go ahead and give you the kind of four little state life stages of the four things that we're going to see. You can go ahead and put them up. Training, commissioning, diplomacy, victory. That's, that's how I would outline this particular text that we're going to look at. Training of Jephthah, then the commissioning of Jephthah, the diplomacy that Jephthah uses uh, as he goes to talk to the Ammonites, and then the diplomacy doesn't work, and the eventual war and the victory. So that's... that's we're going to go in depth on one of those, on all four of those, but that's, that's what we're looking at right here. So number one, training, training. We're looking at Jephthah's tre- troubled past. Boom. Jephthah, a troubled, a troubled past. One commentator says, or commentary says it this way. So Jephthah, the despised um, through dire misfortunes, was prepared for the task of saving the very people who had thrust him out. So you can ask yourself, like, sovereignly, are you, is this commentator saying, sovereignly, God designed Jephthah's life to be the son of a prostitute, to be in a dysfunctional family, to have brothers that despised him, that rejected him and sent him away to the land of Tob, who had to hang around with worthless fellows and really kind of figure out life on his own. yes. And that sovereign hand of God that for some reason allowed him to have this particular life, it was that sovereign hand of God when he sent him into uh, this particular life and went through these, through these circumstances, that was the exact training ground that God wanted for Jephthah to go through in order for him to one day, whenever he, he was raised up, at least by the people of Israel, to be the leader, that's what he wanted. God wanted that that life that he's going through to be the training ground. Which means for us then, your difficult life that you have right now, or good life, or easy life, is precisely the training ground that according to our sovereign God, that he has desired for you to go through. So that you are prepared for the task at hand. He wanted Jephthah to be prepared for the task at hand so that God could use him. Which means the same thing for you. Your life stages that you've gone through, whether they've been incredibly difficult or you've had an easy life, God's design is all over that. That's the training ground that God needed you to go through so that you would be prepared for the task at hand. And every single one of us has a task if you're a believer in Christ, namely the Great Commission. God wants you to fulfill the great commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, that we would go and proclaim the gospel to all those that don't know, every tribe, tongue, and nation. 
And he wants you to have gone through your life circumstances so that you would do that better. So when you ask, why is it that I have this difficult life? Why is it that my life is so bad? Because God trained you through that so that whenever you're fulfilling the Great Commission, you're going to come into contact with people that have also had those difficult life circumstances. It's not that God uh, is mad at you. Quite the contrary. If you're a believer in Christ, he's absolutely in love with you. And he knows that that difficult stuff that you've gone through in life has trained you so that you will be able to come beside other people with, with dysfunctional lives like you and I so that you can reach people. So that's the first thing I want you to see is that though Jephthah was despised through all these things, he was being prepared for the task to save the very people that had actually thrust him out. Which leads me to that second thing. These particular people are the people that hated him and then they came to him and said he needed him. And he could have said, forget it. Now, he does finagle himself and he does kind of uh, do some crafty negotiating. <laughs> but that's his way. You know, he, he grew up with the, in the land of Tob. That's the way it, it was then, right? Um, but nevertheless, God called him to go and help the very people that had rejected him. And God might be doing the same for you. Uh, which is the second thing regarding training. God just might be calling you to reach the very people that have always rejected you and mistreated you. As a matter of fact, it might be just like God for your sanctification to do that. Have you ever heard of St. Patrick? This is the very same thing he did. St. Patrick was an English aristocrat at age 16. He knew of Christianity, but he wasn't a Christian. Uh, he lived, as it says, an ungoverned youth, uh, and he lived what would be on the wild side, much like this. On, lived on the worth, like Jephthah, lived with worthless fellows. And he went out and hung out and partied. But uh, he, at 16, some Celtic pirates captured him and took him to Ireland. He was, he was English, took him over to Ireland and sold him into slavery as a cattle herder. And three things happened. One, he met Jesus. Uh, whenever he became a Christian, um, he started remembering all the catechisms that he learned as a child. And those things that their parents, that his parents had ingrained in him, though they hadn't taken root yet. After he became a Christian, he remembered. So, just a side note: all the work you're doing into your into your children's minds and hearts mean things, whether they are not paying attention and they're staring outside and they don't seem to care. Parents, it really does matter. Anyway, um, then after that, uh, he began to understand the culture of the Irish and their language and their culture. And then after that, he became he actually become. Uh, St. Patrick began to love his captors and he started identifying them. He started praying to God that they would come to know Jesus. And after being there about six years at age 22, a ship came to Ireland uh, and he finagled his way onto this, onto this ship and he escaped and he went back to England. He wanted to get out of there because he was a slave and he, was a, uh, he didn't like that. And when he went back to England, he, he uh, went into the ministry and then he immersed his mind and he studied for a long time the scriptures and worked in ministry in England for about 20 for about 26 years. And then at age 48, well, you know, in the first century where most men are, are about to die, uh, most men's life expectancy was ending, he felt a call through a dream to actually go back to Ireland. The people that mistreated him, God called him to go to love and serve the people that mistreated him, kind of like Jephthah. Uh, and so he obeyed the call, like Paul, uh, the Macedonian call that Paul had. He, like a dream, he went over there 
And it says, when, when uh, book says, Patrick's mission to Ireland was an unprecedented undertaking. This was because he was going to convert barbarians. Not only was it unprecedented, but as- assumed impossible. People didn't think that barbarians become, could become Christians. He went away at 48, back to Ireland, to the people that mistreated him and hated him, and uh, that enslaved him with a dozen people. And he engaged the king and other leaders there for their conversion. Uh, and then... As he was there, he met people, engaged them in conversation. He uh, was in ministry there for another 28 years or so till age 76. He prayed for the sick. He counseled people. He mediated conflicts. He would eventually uh, see many people be converted. He planted churches there. And around, at around age 76 uh, is whenever he would, around whenever he died. And the, this pagan nation with pagan sinners uh, that were so uh, barbarians and considered not even to be able to be converted. He was there, uh, and while he was there, he planted, he probably baptized tens of thousands. Uh, He planted probably around 7,000 churches. He ordained probably at least 1,000 men into ministry. He converted at least 40 out of the 150 people groups that were there. Um, one, One book says, he won so many of them for Christ, he founded so many churches and ordained so many clerics kindled such zeal in men's hearts that it seems right to believe that to him was directly due the wonderful outblossoming of Christianity which distinguished Ireland in the following years. And when writing about all this, St. Patrick said, God wants men to be reborn in God and redeemed from the ends of the earth. He wants his church to fish well, to spread our nets so that we can catch a great multitude for God. The church is to go into all the world, preach the gospel into all creation, teach all nations, and make people children of the living God. And God gave me such a grace that many people through me were reborn into God. And so it might be that just like Patrick, he's calling you to do the exact same thing. Just like he called Jephthah to go and preach the gospel, uh, or not sorry, called Jephthah to go and love and care for and serve these people. Now, Jephthah is not exactly like Patrick. He's a little bit different. Uh, But uh, the application here is this. It doesn't matter what background in this verse, this training ground, it doesn't matter what background you're from, God can and will use you. And your life up until now is exactly the training ground that God wanted. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't an accident. As difficult as it may be, um, it wasn't an accident that God wants to use you so that you can reach people. And he might just be calling you to go back and reach the very people that have mistreated your entire life. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that that's not something that God doesn't do. He certainly does do that. That's the first thing. The second thing that we want to look at is the commissioning. Um, now, Jephthah, uh, as they come to him, remember, at, he's been hanging, he's kind of like a crime mob boss. And so when they come to him, uh, it, everything's transactional with him. And so they like come to him. And after a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. When the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, come out and be our leader that we made fight against the Ammonites. And here it is. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, uh, why would you want me? Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me that now when you're in distress? And they said, that's why we've turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be head over all the inhabitants of, of Gilead. So he's, he, he's like, you hate me. You don't really like me. You don't really care about me. You just know that I'm a mighty warrior and that none of you can get the task done. So the only reason why you want me is because you know I can defeat them. You don't really care about me. You don't really want me to be a part of things. And so they're like, no, we just want you to fight. And so as he negotiates, he's like eventually trying to say, if I come back, 
I get to be the president. I get to be the head of everything. I'm in charge of everything. I get my own phone line. No one bothers me. I get my own secretary. You got to do what I say. Like I get, I'm in charge of everything. And they're like, all right, that's fine. We just don't want to be oppressed that bad. And so he's a little crafty negotiator in this little commissioning that he's doing um, here. But nevertheless, the elders of Gilead have to eat their humble pie because they've certainly mistreated him. And now they need, now they need his help. And so he negotiates this and says, um, the elders of Gilead said, that's why we turn to you now that you can fight and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And Jephthah said uh, to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. That's almost in the form of a question, the way I read it and studied this week. Uh, and the elders of the Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord will be witness with us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders and the people. Here it is. Notice this. This is a key thing right here in verse 11. This is different than most other leaders that are appointed in the book of Judges. It's always Yahweh appointed this guy to be the rescuer. The Lord appointed this guy to be the rescuer. Not in verse 11. The people made him head and leader over him. Not God. So this is not a God appointed leader. Now, we see the graciousness of God in verse 29 whenever it's the people that appointed Jephthah and not God, verse 29, then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. God just with overflowing grace said, I didn't pick this guy, but you need my help. You're going to be destroyed by the Ammonites. So I will place the spirit of, of the Lord upon Jephthah and he will defeat the Ammonites in war. But that's just highlighting the grace of God and also highlighting the, the poor uh, decision-making and, the, and the, the wretched sinfulness that the people of Israel, as they go down this spiral, have come to, that they're, they're picking their leaders, not God anymore. They're not seeking the face of Israel. But nevertheless, here we go. Uh, and it says, they, they appointed them, uh, they pointed him head. And Jephthah spoke all these words before the Lord. And this, this Jephthah spoke all the words before the Lord. Um, this, this isn't, I don't think, a... a a time where they're like, we've all decided and we've prayed and we, we know that this is what God wants. And so we're going to the Lord and we're, we're sealing it with God. I think this is more like a tack on kind of uh, symbolic thing. Now that we've done everything that we can do, we're going to go kind of over to God and say, hey, God, we've made him the head. And we're going to do all this and say the vows so that you just kind of have to say yes to it. I don't think it's, it's necessarily the God ordained from the beginning decision. They just say, well, this is what we want. Oh, yeah. We're supposed to make sure God's fine with this. Let's just go say these vows before God too. And he just doesn't really have a choice in this. Uh, anyway, so as we're looking at this though, um, there's a couple practical pieces of advice um, that I see in verses four through 11, that we should all know these things in life. These are just, this is literally just practical pieces of advice, but I think helpful. Um, the way the elders deal with Jephthah, the way that Jephthah deal with the elders. Um, the first thing that we see is this. They've mistreated Jephthah and now they need his help. This isn't the way that we as believers should do. We shouldn't mistreat people. Uh, they have mistreated him. We shouldn't castigate people out that we think are less than us. No matter who they are, no matter where they came from, even if they're Clemson fans, we shouldn't, we shouldn't mistreat them. I'm just kidding. I know y'all beat Furman. Good job. Um, uh, we beat Coastal, so whatever. It was bad. Anyway, so we shouldn't. My point is this. Uh, no one is less than you. No one should be treated bad. It doesn't matter their background. Everyone should be treated the same. And that's what the elders of Gilead, that's what the Gilead, these people have done to, to Jephthah. And then they have to eat humble pie because they did that. This is not the way that Christian people should treat people. Not only that, um, 
whenever you do mistreat people, which we're sinners, we're going to, don't let time go past a long time before you finally confront them uh, just because you need them. Instead, when you do it, unlike the elders of Gilead, quickly go to them and repent. These elders didn't go to Jephthah right away. When did they go? They went when they needed him. They had, had to finally swallow their kind of humble pie and go, but only because they were forced to. This is not what Christians should look like. Christians should be the first and the quickest to repent whenever we've offended and hurt someone. We should be the first people. Next thing, don't use people. That's all they're doing is using him. The only reason that they're willing to strike all these deals is, uh, and make him the president is because, and the, uh, the, the king over everything, is, or the leader over everything, is because they want to save themselves. They have self-preservation, which could just be immoral. Self-preservation, I think, is innate. I think we can't help it. But sometimes it can, it can cause us to, to act in quite immoral ways. And that's what they're doing here is they're, they're just using him. Uh, and so we shouldn't do that. It shouldn't be, uh, it shouldn't be the, something that Christians do is just use people, which is what the elders of Gilead are doing. And vice versa, what Jephthah's doing for them. I come back, you make me president. You know, he's doing the same thing because he knows they need him. And lastly, and this is maybe the most important thing here, uh, which I highlight in verse 11, any major life decision that all of us are, make, are doing um, shouldn't just be uh, where we attach God as an addendum at the end of it after we finally made the decision. That's all they're doing here. Um, God's in charge, and he should be um, pursued and sought after in the beginning and every single stage along our decision-making process and not just kind of sought after and bring it, quote-unquote, before the Lord for his symbolic blessing later on. No matter how big or how small the decision is, God should be an intricate part of our decision-making process the entire time, the entire time. And that's not what's going on with the people of Israel here. Um, Had they sought after uh, God from the very beginning, We don't know, but maybe Jephthah would not have been raised up as the leader. Nevertheless, he was. So as we're looking at this second section, application is this. Unlike Jephthah, we should not try to negotiate with God or other people. Instead, we should accept what the Lord wants us to do uh, and that he wants to use us for his glory. And we shouldn't try to be crafty with God or crafty with others like he is. Um, And that's not his desire. Instead, we should give ourselves wholly over to his purposes unconditionally to be able to uh, fulfill the task that he's given to us. So what's God calling to you, you to do? And what are you trying to negotiate? And what, are you, what parts of your life are you trying to withhold and say, uh, I'll only give you that, God, if I get these things. There's no if-thens and ifs with God, right? It's God's calling you over and you give him your whole life. Don't be the crafty negotiator like Jephthah with God. That's not how it works. Instead, since we've been called by God and saved by God fully, we give him our entire life over to him. We say, whatever you want, whatever you want. Next thing, um, we need to get through this decently fast. I'm taking too long, sorry. So in verses 12 through 27, this is what we see. Um, we read it and it was rather long, but uh, with, instead of fighting, Jephthah decides to have diplomacy first. Instead of going right to war, he, he tries diplomacy And as he's doing this, he really has three defenses that he makes with the king of the Ammonites. He's trying to help them see, hey, uh, we don't need to go to war. 
This isn't something that we need to do. And he uses three different uh, methods of diplomacy. The first is a historical defense. And that's in verse 15 through 22. 15 through 22 is his historical defense. Uh, Basically, when he talks about how Whenever we left Egypt, we tried to go here. They said no. And then we tried to go here. They said no. And then we tried to go here. And that Sihon guy, he didn't really believe us. And so he, he tried to fight us. And then we we're like, oh, you want to go on? Okay, well, we're going to fight you. We tried these other people to go around and they didn't let us. And we just wanted to pass through. And since you didn't want to let us, Sihon, and you actually came after us, we, we whipped you. We beat you. We won fair and square. We took your stuff. That's the way it goes. And so he gives them a historical defense. That's what he says basically at the end of 21 and 22. And the Lord uh, the God of Israel gave Sihon and all his people in the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of the land of the Amorites uh, and who inhabited that country. And so he's talking to the king of the Ammonites and says, that was the Ammonites, not the, um, that was the Amorites, not the Ammonites. You, you missed the letter, but it has nothing to do with you. We're talking about the Amorites, not the Ammonites. Those are two different people. So why do you think that this isn't our land? It is our land. They, def- they came after us. We defeated them fair and square. We took it. That's the historical defense he makes. Well, um, after he does that, he also gives them a theological defense. So before we talk about the theological defense, that's in verses 23 and 24. Uh, back then when you went to war, if you won, then the belief system of everybody there, pagans or the, the followers of the one true God, Yahweh, thought that if I win, my God gave me the victory. That's what they thought. Now, we know that there's only actually one true God, the God of the Bible, and all the others are just false gods. But they believed in this little... This little God, you can see it in verse 24, Chemosh, however you pronounce it. <clears throat> they thought that if we win, Chemosh gave us the victory. And so he, he uses a theological defense. It's the second reason in verses 22 and 23. Uh, and basically saying, when we won, he, he, Jephthah kind of condescends to that king's belief system and says, uh, whenever we won, our God gave us the victory. So the theological defense is why we are in this land is because our God gave us the victory. And that's why he says to them in verse 24, will you not possess what Chemosh your God gives you to possess? If you win, you thought your God gave it to you. Don't you get it? Like you're allowed to keep it. Now, commentators went crazy here because they're thinking, well, does he believe in Chemosh? Or is he just trying to condescend and use an illustration? We don't know. Likely because he's such a mess in his belief system. Maybe he did, but that's not really the point. The point is that he makes this theological defense in diplomacy. And lastly, he gives this uh, legal defense or an argument from precedent, and that's in verse 25 through 27. Basically, he's like, hey, this war happened 300 years ago. Why do you care now? (laughs) Why is it that after 300 years, you finally think that it's important for you to uh, try to take this? And so, um, why is it that you're raising this now? That's basically what, he's, what he does. Now, instead of really going into the, uh, the historical, theological, and, and legal defenses any further, that's really the, all we need to know. I think this is a, an important part is this, is how does an outlaw, crime boss, leader of thugs, son of a prostitute become so knowledgeable in history and theology and law? How does that happen? It doesn't seem like when he's running around with the worthless fellows of Tob, that he's supposed to know all these things. How is that possible? Um, I think it's actually quite surprising that he knows this, that he's such a learned person and seems to be a decent diplomat. Well, the diplomacy part's likely because of the training ground, uh, where he had to run things and negotiate and do all that stuff, and so he sees that usually as the best bet. But nevertheless, um, we still see that he's quite gifted and learned, um, and whether you might think uh, 
you're learned or not. I can say this. Uh, even 3,400 years ago, men who had difficult family lives still had the ability by themselves to better themselves in their education. That, that's what's going on here. I mean, he's able to quote <clears throat> history to them, theological reasons, and also the law. So if we're going to make a, an application from this, especially kind of staying in the vein is who does God want to use his work and what are some of the important things that we can do if we're going to be used by God is that we should do the same thing. God wants you also, no matter uh, what family you grew up in, no matter how much education you have had, your education level, he still wants you to be this kind of person that uses your mind and your brain for his glory. Study and learn. Study and learn, study and learn. It doesn't matter uh, how long you've been able to read or if you can't read at all or if you are unbelievable at reading and you can read 20 books, you know, a day. Um, God wants you to continually study and study and study him, to know him. He wants you to, uh, he takes Jephthah, this scoundrel, and he educates himself in these three important realms. He wants you to study the Bible and study him and get to know him so that whenever you're being used for his purposes, that you're able to talk about him cogently. That's what this guy Jephthah's doing. Now, he's not necessarily a great guy, but nevertheless, uh, he has educated self, himself in some way to be able to make these arguments. And so we can make an application from that as well, that we should be the kind of people that study the Bible you study the Bible by yourself. You study the Bible in groups of one and two. You study the Bible in community groups. You study theology as well. Study the Bible first, but you study theology too. If you want to read Wayne Grudem, Systematic Theology, it's 1,400 pages of awesomeness. Uh, but it's, it's written not to seminarians. It's written to just churchgoers. If you read the preface, my wife called it the preface once. And we had a funny job a long time ago. She's real smart. Um, probably shouldn't have said that. Sorry if you're watching. Um, so... Uh, but it says in, in the preface, this book is written for people that are just regular churchgoers. It's not written for seminarians. Um, and the whole point is, like, you can study lots of things about God, and he wants us to do that. Now, uh, the Ammonite king, as he hears all these things, uh, he wasn't in the mood to be convinced by facts. And so he just wants to go to, to war, which brings us to the last thing, uh, the victory. Now, as we get into 29 through 33, again, uh, the writer... Uh, gives a tiny little brief writing about the victory and he's talking about the tragic vow. So the writer wants us to notice that yes, God gave the victory, but this guy Jephthah is a mess and look what he does. And so Jordan preached that sermon last week. So I'm going to just point out the, the, the thing about the victory because Jordan preached that sermon last week. Although I, I agree, the writer's not trying to highlight the victory as much as he's trying to highlight this tragic vow. But nevertheless, he does mention the victory. You can see in verse 29, the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. And then verse uh, 29b, the rest of it, you can see, and Jephthah passed through all these places. The, the Spirit of God is allowing him to go through and make these passes. And then verse 32, Jephthah crossed over the Ammonites to fight against uh, them. And then here it is, the Lord gave them into his hand. It's still the Lord that gets all the credit for the victory. And then they struck them down in verse 33, as far as these 20 cities. And the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. So they were subdued. Victory happens. Victory, victory does uh, happen. And it's all because of the Lord God. Now there is, as I said, there's not written much about this battle because the writer's trying to turn our attention to that vow. But which makes the victory great 
and bitter. Uh, but nevertheless, the victory is given. So the application that we can hear as, is this. Um, if God wants us to be, God wants to use us and he wants us to, to um, go forward and accomplish his purposes, he's not calling you to bring about victory. Here's the good news. That's already happened. The victory's already happened. I've heard these stories like in World War II, whenever Germany was defeated and they didn't have you know, Twitter at the time. So they're gonna be like, hey, the thing's over. Everybody in Germany, uh, you're free. They didn't have that. So the victory had already happened, but they actually had to have people run around and say, hey, by the way, just so you know, you are acting like you're not free, but we won. And so you're actually free now. You're free. That's the message we get right now. If you believe in Christ, you're acting like you're not free, but here's the deal. If you believe in Christ, you can be free now. That's the job we have. We don't have to actually go accomplish the victory because it's already done. We actually just get to go tell people, hey, the victory's already been given to you, trust in Christ. As to quote the great theologian, David Crowder, in the song, We Win, he says, we're gonna shout loud, loud until the walls come down. Shout loud, loud until the walls come down. Loud until the walls come down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we've already won and you don't have a chance. Yeah, we've already won and no, you don't have a chance. Yeah, it's already done and you don't have a chance because we've already won. We have already won. That's the great news here. As the, the people that are being used by God... We aren't going to win the victory like Jephthah had to. The victory's already been won by Jesus. We just got to go tell them. The victory's already happened. Hallelujah. I hear that. Meaning, Christ has already done everything and defeated all of our enemies at the cross. Paul says it this way. Paul says it for us this way. Probably should quote the Bible, not just Dave Crowder. He says it this way. For in him, Jesus, this is Colossians 2, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him in faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands." This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rules and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The victory has already been won. Jesus was nailed to the cross. Therefore, all of our sins have been forgiven, nailed to the cross. And the amazing privilege now for us is going and letting everyone know that the battle is over and they can live as free people if they put their trust in Christ. That's the message. That's the message we have. That's it. So as believers in Christ, you don't try to go beyond that message. You dive deeper into that message. That's our job as Christians. Not to say we got the gospel. What's next? It's there is no beyond the gospel. It's keep going deeper and deeper and deeper into the same message, which is victory has been won. You are absolutely declared righteous. And now because of who you are and where you've come from and everything that's happened in your life, God isn't hoping to use you. God wants to use you. 
God can use you. You are exactly where you are in life, precisely poised to be used by God to push forward his purposes and accomplish his will and tell people about this great news that you've already heard of. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that the victory has already been won and that we can come uh, each Sunday and celebrate that. We can come to the table and take the Lord's Supper knowing that we are completely washed clean, that we can go out to this world uh, reminding ourselves of this good news so that we can live in victory. We don't have to live in defeat. And that's not the point of being a believer is beating ourselves up daily thinking that we're so bad. Instead, it's since you have declared us righteous, we march forward in absolute adoration of Jesus that the victory has been given to us. Because Jesus took our place on the cross, we trusted in him, we believed in him, we repented of our sin, all of our sin is forgiven, and now we dive deeper into that message every day and every week of the good news of Christ. Thank you for that. Lord, we're all equipped now. We're all poised to be used by you. Everything that we've experienced up until this point in our life is exactly your sovereign plan, good or bad. We don't know why. One day we'll know in heaven. But what we know right now is everything that we've experienced is exactly what you wanted us to experience so that there's other people that don't know you that we can go to, love, care, minister, tell about Jesus, and let them know that they can have victory. So, Lord, would you please... Please use us. Use us, Lord, so that other people can know you. Help us be righteous leaders like Jesus and not unrighteous leaders like Jephthah. We're all sinners like Jephthah. And you show us that you use these kind of people. And so we are those kinds of people and that you use us as well. We thank you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going into the time of the Lord's Supper where we celebrate the fact that the victory has been given to us. We've already won. And so use this time as we take the Lord's Supper now uh, to think and pray and give thanks to God for that. Whenever you're ready, you come forward, get the bread, get the cup, come back to your seat, and we'll take the Lord's Supper collectively together, celebrating our unity as a church body and as a family in Christ. And then we'll, we'll continue worshiping after we, uh, after we take the Lord's Supper through giving and song. So whenever you're ready... Come forward. There's also a table in the back. Just know that there's a, there's a wine and a juice. Pick the one you want. And then come back to your seat. And then we'll continue in worship. I'll come up and lead us together.